Hey, it's Arrow. PodFest brings together three different types of conversations. Musicians, authors, doctors, environmentalists, and even cooks in their own kitchen. It's real people with real stories. PodFest 57, we kick things off with Larry Studnicki from the always fun and upbeat band High Plains Drifters. Then we're stepping into music history with Holly George Warren, who penned out the journey of Janis Joplin, her life and music. Our third conversation is all about laughter. Impractical jokers Sal and Q. This is PodFest 57. We are unplugged and totally uncut with Larry Studnicki from High Plains Drifters. I'm good. <laughs> I just finished. I just finished throwing a blue cheese and bacon bits omelet on the stove. I tried you, but I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for sure you'd be sitting around singing Christmas carols right now. Uh, almost. I started. You know, this has been such a messed up year. Avoid curses. Never know when I'm being recorded. It's been such a messed up year. I determined to stop watching the news and start watching Christmas movies early. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. The first time that I heard Santa bring my girlfriend back, I'm, I'm telling you, I really, I, I, I thank God for it because it took me away from the world. So, I mean, you knew exactly what you were doing when you were putting this song together. Well, I, yes and no. I mean, I, I, once the song popped into my head, then I made a conscious decision. I mean, didn't, I didn't know where it was going immediately but within a couple of minutes i was like okay well you know why is this guy drinking so heavily you know uh why is he shit-faced all through christmas and i i guess i i guess i've never heard any other christmas songs that start from this premise that santa stole your girlfriend <laughs> but if you if you go if you go on spotify or you go on pandora and you start searching for Santa Bring My Girlfriend Back, there are some that are like Santa Bring My Baby Home and stuff like that. I, I was completely unaware, thank God. Wow, wow. Well, we've always thought that Santa was a dirty old man anyway. I mean, because, I mean, look, Mama was kissing Santa Claus, and I'm thinking, what happened here? Yeah, no, you've got to figure. If you were given superpowers, whether they're like Santa with the ability to fly or eternal life or Superman flying or anything, you know, and you're, you're like a guy, what, what are you going to do with them on some level? You're going to direct the superpowers towards women, right? I figure. So. <laughs> well, I love the appeal that you put on it in the in the, in the the orchestration of the song because you went with Dean Martin, and 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 it really is it's kind of a nice vibe about it that really kind of puts us in a roaring twenties kind of celebration. Well, I, I I thank I thank you for saying that 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 was deliberate. I have a I have a tendency in my songwriting maybe because of when I grew up and music first, you know, settled into my head. I have a tendency to, to lean sometimes in the direction of the Eagles and, you know, sort of country leaning bands like that. And I, I, when this song, when I first took it to the guys in the band, I said explicitly, this song has to be done more like a Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra Christmas classic. Can't have a hint of country for Americana on it. And, uh, I mean, honestly, we, we lucked out. It's almost like God was looking after this song because, uh, my producer had a horn section in New York city targeted to do horn parts. And I, I heard, I heard some very simple horn parts on the song in my head. And those are the parts that the guys are playing on the first verse. But after the first verse, I was like, if we can find a horn section, just let them do whatever makes sense. The New York guys were too booked, and my producer, Greg Cohen, found these guys in L.A. 
They called themselves the 305 Horns. And I mean, when we, when we heard what they did, we all just sat back and went, that's amazing. You know, like these guys killed it. So <laughs> Now the band we're talking about is High Plane Drifters. Would you consider you got yourself as being a modern day super band? Oh, uh, we're not, we're not, well, well, look, we're, we're a modern day super band in the sense that we've all managed to uh, outlive a lot of people uh, uh, our age who, for one reason or another, you know, like mishaps or, or drug abuse or whatever, didn't, didn't make it to, to the ages we've made it to. So in that, in that sense, I think we're super, but I mean, we're not, we're not well known. We're not a super group. It's, it's not like we put five guys together from five other famous bands. We're just, you know, a bunch of guys who knew each other. <laughs> now, when it comes time to record a Christmas song, did you do what the, what, what even Dion Warwick has talked about? And that is you recorded it right before summer hit. So you had to pretend it was cold outside. Not really. I mean, song. I wrote the song the day after Christmas two years ago. Wow. So, um, yeah, it, it was triggered by a Christmas Day family drama. You know, Christmas got all messed up. I was hosting uh, my family, not my wife's family. I want to be clear. It's the Studnicky family. And there was some family drama. And I woke up on December 26, 2018. I was puttering around the kitchen, making the coffee. I was the only one up. And the first two or three lines of the song just popped into my head. Oh my I'm God. drinking way too much this Christmas. My friends all want to know the reason why. I had the lyrics. I had the melody. And it was cold outside. So I was, I was properly motivated. The right season of the year. I mean, we did record it in the summer. But, but the song was, was ready to go. Uh, like last June, we had a, a demo version that was pretty much there so now when, when you put together a christmas song do you think of the future listener or do you keep your focus on what's going on right now i, I you give more credit than maybe i'm due as a songwriter i don't know that i am as thoughtful and deliberate uh in terms of thinking the future as as you i think more about you know rhyme scheme and is this a story that people can relate to? I, I consider myself kind of a storyteller, songwriter. Most of my songs are mini, little mini narratives in a way. Um, uh, but yeah, on a Christmas song, I think you do, you do, you do say to yourself, "I'd like to think that this song could be played 50 years from now," because you know I mean, we're all listening to songs from 30, 40, 50, 60, and even 70 years ago at Christmas. So you're thinking that you don't want to write lyrics that place it too with too much specificity in its time. Um, but I, I did I did this past spring or summer in in the second verse. I deliberately switched the original lyrics to make reference to uh, to the COVID situation, talking about how you know my my stolen girlfriend. Uh, you know, she doesn't have a virus and her hands are always clean. That, that was not the line. That's not the line that was written in winter 2018, 19. So. <laughs> I, I could just see this being turned into a movie with Dax Shepard playing the part of Santa Claus and Reese Witherspoon would be, would be the, the girl that's cheating on, on her husband. It should be a movie. It should be a movie. So now, now the pressure's on you. Now you, you got to turn this baby into a movie then. I don't, I don't, I don't have the budget for that, frankly. <laughs> But you are you are writing music for a brand new album, though, right? Uh, uh, it's it's mostly all written. Okay. Um, 
Um, in fact, uh, last week, my producer and I sat down and we uh, finalized the last five songs that will come, that will round out the song album. So um, I often, when I write a song, I often walk around with just the first verse and chorus in my head, which is enough for me to remember the song and I scribble the lyrics down somewhere. And, and then when we get around to recording, I'm usually under the gun to write verse two, verse three, a bridge, you know, et cetera. And uh, that, that was true on a bunch of these songs, but we're, we're pretty far along. We have, we're uh, three songs in the can, three more in good demo form. And then uh, the last six are being, hopefully we'll have demos of them done between now and the end of January. So now what is it like to promote music nowadays? Because I mean, it seems like, you know, that it, you have to have that independent mind, but at the same time, you've got to have that financial backing. Um, I am unfortunately the bank no. for this project, <laughs> you know, um, so it, it, it's tough. I mean, I'm married. I have a daughter. She's in, she's in, she's in eighth grade. She's in a private school. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, there are a lot of competing demands on my pocketbook and I have to be very prudent in terms of what I do in promoting music. I mean, we're getting, uh, this, single, the one we're talking about, is the first one that's getting a little bit of help from a, a major record company. We're not technically signed to Universal, but Universal picked up the single for distribution. Some of the radio people that are involved are people that uh, Universal plugged into the project. Uh, I have my own, since, since the first album we did, I have the same marketing guy and and PR guy, but we're, we're working with uh, some different people at radio than we did in the past, and uh, hopefully Universal can help us break through some of the uh, some of the noise that comes with every major artist that on every major label trying to put out a Christmas song. You know, it's hard for guys like us to get noticed. You talk about your daughter being in the eighth grade. I was talking with Steve Lukather of the group Toto, and we got onto the conversation that you can't walk into a guitar store without seeing empty shelves. And they felt it was because they weren't making the guitars, when the truth is these young adults are learning how to play those guitars, and, and they're sitting in their homes during quarantine, and they're creating music. Do you think we're on the edge of a new music movement? I hope so. Uh, I, I grew up in a house... Uh, without a lot of musical influences. And my parents had some music on, on a crappy little stereo from time to time, but there was no push in my house for any of us kids to take music lessons. Um, you know, we discovered music just from, you know, the guys and girls in the neighborhood, usually the ones who were a little bit older than us, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, and then everything that came after that. Um, I'm dating myself, but you know I don't hide the fact that I don't hide the fact that I'm an older guy, and like so many people in my generation, you know everything that I do with music, you can trace back to sitting in a dark basement listening to those early Beatles and Stones records and pretending that you were a band, you know. Um, but you know, I, I've heard a lot of stories uh, anecdotally during COVID about. I hadn't heard about guitars selling out, but I've heard a lot of stories, even from adults that I know around around the country, who who picked up the guitar or forced themselves to sit down at a piano and either start from scratch or start relearning things that they they learned in the lessons they didn't want to take as a kid. I I hope we're heading in that direction because one of the things that uh, bugs me uh, about music today is both a blessing and a curse. The technology 
that we have available to us on a laptop now is better than what anybody had in the best studios of 30 or 40 years ago. So that's great. But the tendency of people to think like a Billie Eilish, to think that everybody can be Billie Eilish with her brother and sit in at home in their bedroom and produce a fabulous debut album is, is frankly hogwash. I mean, you know, she's that rare thing. She's a great songwriter and she happens to be, God knows how it happened. I guess it can happen in the same family. Maybe it's all genetic. You know, her brother produces, she writes. And the rarest thing in the world is someone who can keep writing catchy hit songs. It's not like everyone can, it's not like everyone can do it. And I, we're, we're a, we're a rock instrumentation based band, you know, two guitarists, a bass player, drums, uh, keyboards, sometimes strings, sometimes horns, but essentially, you know, it's like a, a traditional four piece band. And we actually, you know, everyone plays their plays live instruments and we record all together at the same time wow. in the studio. In, wow. in, in, you know, everyone's in their own little isolation, but we do it the old fashioned way. And, uh, I mean, not, not that the computer, obviously the computers are used and every now and then something is enhanced, maybe with some program drums and, you know, sometimes the strings are, are synthesized or whatever, but, you know, we're essentially doing everything the way bands did 30 or 40 years ago, but with today's technology. And I'm, I'm hoping that we're entering an era where we're going to hear more live guitars on pop radio again, but who knows? Guitars with guitar solos. Yeah, I don't think you're going to hear that. It's funny. I, I keep having these discussions with, with the band and my producer. You know, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll go, I'll say, listen to the One Direction guys as, as solo artists. You know, pick one. Um, they're still using guitars. Uh, not big rock guitars, but they're still using guitars. Ed Sheeran is still using guitars. But nobody's, nobody's using guitars the way, you know, even, you know, before we, you know, Tom Petty or the way Springsteen is using, I mean, the new Springsteen record is that, you know, it's a, it's a rock record. Um, people are, but kids aren't, kids aren't, they don't hear those. They don't want those guitars. They don't hear those guitars. And yet, it's funny, I watched my daughter back to the 13 year old. If she hears a great song in a movie soundtrack, it doesn't matter from what era it is. Uh, it ends up on her uh, iPhone playlist, so she, she, she's listening to. Uh, she's been li- and she surprises me sometimes. She's been listening to uh, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, "Ain't No Mountain High Enough," because we, or when COVID hit, we started you know quarantining and cocooning. And there was one week where I said, "All right, this week we're going to watch nothing but great sports movies about underdogs triumphing." And so we watched uh, "Remember the Titans," and 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 the song the song is prominent in that soundtrack, and my daughter fell in love with it. Um, similarly, she heard uh, somewhere on TikTok she heard uh, "Tears for Fear." Everybody wants to rule the world, and she put it on. I drive her to school in the morning. She's in private school. I drive her and I say, "Play your music, kid. You know, let me hear what you're listening to." And on comes "Tears for Fear," and I say, <laughs> "You realize? You realize?" You've heard that song like a thousand times on my car radio and on the stereo at home. 
And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. But it, it's like it, it didn't register with her until it was on TikTok <laughs> or in a movie. Right, right. <laughs> so now where can listeners go to find out more about High Plane Drifters as well as Santa Bring My Girlfriend Back? I'd say just you know, go to your favorite streaming service, search for High Plane Drifters, search for Santa Bring My Girlfriend Back. Um, listen to the music there. I love it, man. You got to come back to this show anytime in the future, especially when, you, when you're about ready to drop this brand new album, because I want to talk about it by breaking down the lyrics. I'd be happy to do that. We can do that uh, any, anytime, probably after January. We sh- it should be all not done, but I'd like to think that by January, February, everything is at least in the mixing stage. So Excellent. Well, I look forward to that then, sir. You have yourself a brilliant weekend, okay? I wish you well. Next week's Thanksgiving, so have a great Thanksgiving. And if any of your, you know, to all your listeners, have a great Thanksgiving. And starting on Thanksgiving Day, start listening to your Christmas music. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, guy. <laughs> all right. Unplugged and totally uncut with Holly George Warren. Hi, Arrow. How are you doing, Holly? I'm very good. I'm happy to be talking with you about Janice. Yeah, and you couldn't ask for a better time for this book to come out because with the album sales that we're seeing right now that are, that are skyrocketing, people are discovering music that's always been around, especially the millennials and the I generation, and your book fits perfectly in there. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that. I do teach at a university back in New York, and it is heartening that my students, you know, they're like 19, 20 years old, they're into vinyl, they're into classic albums, and when they've seen clips, for example, on YouTube of Janice at Monterey doing Ball and Chain, they are blown away. They're like, oh my gosh, and I, I think they become big fans, you know? Well, how did you become a big fan, or are you just a journalist? Which one is it? Uh, well, both, both, I would say, um, but... Uh, fandom definitely goes all the way back to growing up in a small town in North Carolina, fortunately during the golden age of AM radio, when you could hear a huge diversity of uh, songs on the radio, and I was able to tune in beginning in like third grade, late at night on my little clock radio to uh, WABC in New York, WLS in Chicago, so I got exposed to all kinds of music, and then I, of course, uh, found out about Janice through seeing her on the Dick Cavett show, like in 1970. Again, I was, you know, a teenager, young. And then, of course, uh, Pearl, I got from the Columbia House Record Club. Remember that? (laughs) 12 albums for a penny, you know? Oh, yeah. I still have my original copy. I bought every one I was supposed to. You're supposed to, like, you get 10 and you have to buy, like, seven or something like that. It's like, come on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I did that too. So that was that was the beginning of my album collection. I had already started buying 45s when I was in like third grade and stuff. But that's when I turned on to Janice big time. And then, of course, over the years, once I did become a music journalist, when I moved to New York, I went back and, you know, of course, I'd heard a piece of my heart and some of her hits from the radio, but went back and started learning about her and, you know, becoming very intrigued on her musical path. When you put a book like this together, you you had to have been listening to the music as well because when I'm when I'm reading your paragraphs, I can feel Janice right there on those pages. Oh my gosh, well thanks for saying that because that was really young white girl in segregated Port Arthur, Texas in the 50s discover all this amazing um, blues, African-American music that was not very accessible to people back in those days. 78s by Bessie Smith and Lead Belly and, and people like that, which was the original um, immersion into music that got her developing her own voice and her own sound to become the Janis Joplin that we know and love. 
Do you think any of the Pied Pipers of rock and roll played with that? And what what we in radio we call those people that were overnight radio disc jockeys that knew when their program directors went to bed, and that's when they whipped out all of the R and B music. Do you think she was glued to that radio just like you were? Oh, you nailed it. Yes, when she, I mean, she was just. I mean, when you think about it, this was the fifties. She and her girlfriend would drive around at night and listen to the Beaumont station. And there was a guy, a DJ named Steve O, the Night Rider, who they loved his music, the records, the R and B that he was playing. And they literally would go there at night and say, "Oh, can we get some coffee for you?" I mean, she wanted to learn about these records, where they came from, who were these artists. I mean, she was on a quest. And it was really thanks to the radio, driving around, because back in those days in Port Arthur, Texas, it was called the Golden Triangle. You drove from Port Arthur to Beaumont to Orange, Texas, the Gulf Coast of Texas, listening to the radio. And that's how she got to hear this great music in the 50s when, you know, later on it was not so easily um, available on the radio. But in the 50s, she was able to tune in and get this great stuff. Through your pages and the paragraphs that you've presented to us, we, we realize that she had a great love for music. But, but, but in reading your words, I also feel like that she wanted to be heard and seen 100 years later. Oh, yeah. She... She was striving for greatness. Um, that was instilled in her by her parents, really, growing up, uh, to be special, to work really hard, find your talent and develop your talent, and continue to perfect your talent. And that's what she did as a singer. I mean, you know, she, you know, some people think of her as singing certain types of music, but if you dig deep into her back catalog or listen to bootlegs, you hear her exploring all kinds of different music and evolving as a singer. And had she lived, you know, she was so young when she tragically died at age 27, but um, I think she would have continued exploring different genres of music. She would have continued writing songs because she was above all and beyond all a musician. One of the things that we, we always hear that, oh, the musician, they, they, you know, they, they overdosed. But as a creative person, you're one, I'm one. We all know of those moments where, where we're trying to reach for that one place, that, that high, that emotional high. Now, yeah, she took drugs, but do you think that she was searching for that for that lift up on, on from something? Because th- I just don't believe that she just committed suicide. I just don't believe that or or just had a drug overdose. Something else was really going on here. Yeah, it, it was a tragic accident. I mean, just like, you know, recently we've lost, you know, Tom Petty and Prince right. tragically, you know, fentanyl, you know, you get hold if you mess around with narcotics, you get hold of a very strong batch and it can kill you. And that's basically what happened to Janice. She had been addicted to heroin. um, And for her, I think it was kind of this, I call it, I think in the book, a blanket of numb, you know, just to kind of, you know, decompress, chill from all those incredible pressures, especially after she left Big Brother and the Holding Company, became a solo artist and was really being um, criticized by former champions in the press about daring to strike off on her own and try to do a different kind of music than what she'd done with her band that had done kind of what they called freak rock. And so she, you know, pressures of leading a band and all that kind of thing. And unfortunately, little did we know, a lot of Janice's peers and Janice were turning to heroin to kind of chill out. And sadly, it's, you know, a horribly addictive drug, and that's what happened. But in 1970, she had stopped using it. She'd been clean for about five months. 
she was still quite the heavy drinker, which actually takes worse of a toll on the voice than, you know, heroin. And um, she was in the studio working on Pearl, sadly bumped into her old dealer, got tempted, you know, so she relapsed while making this record and seeing it as kind of an alternative, like, well, if I just do a little tiny bit, you know, I won't drink so much or whatever. And horribly, she got a very pure uh, new kind of heroin that had just come into the country called China White, kind of like the fentanyl of its day. And um, it was, you know, her tolerance was down. She was all by herself after being in the studio, and uh, she overdosed accidentally. So it was definitely a tragic accident. One of the things that you point out in your book, and very delicately as well, is that I didn't realize she was a shy girl. So she used her music as a mask. Oh, yeah. She was the... She was the queen of creating this image and this persona of this brazen, wild, blues mama, party girl, you know, and I bought it, you know. I mean, you just look at the cover of Pearl and look at her there lounging on this, you know, this couch with her feathers and all that stuff. But, yeah, there was a whole other side to Jana. She was an intellectual. She was a total bookworm. She always had a book with her. And she was really pretty shy. And, in fact, she first started singing as a college student in Austin, Texas, back in 1962. And she had to be really cajoled into getting up and singing in front of people. She would have a few beers and and sing with her friends, and they were blown away by her voice. But to start singing before an audience really took a lot of coaxing. But then, oh, my gosh, talk about creating a monster. Once she found this audience response to her singing – she, you know, loved it, and she loved being on stage. I mean, I think that was her favorite part of music, was connecting with audiences. And still, though, to, you know, go from backstage to getting on stage and looking out and seeing all those people out there, it's frightening. I mean, people that have been doing it for decades still get a bit of stage fright, and Janice was no exception. You would never guess it by the way, you know, you can see this footage of her on stage, and you would never dream that she was had any kind of fear. But, you know, again, that's one way that a lot of artists kind of get rid of those fears and inhibitions, have a few drinks before going on stage, and, you know, Janice certainly used that as a tool for that. Um, so, yeah. In this day and age, with your students and with those that are discovering Janice, even with fans of Janice, we look back and we see black and white photos and we see color photos. So we see both sides of Janice Joplin. What what did she see? Because, I mean, what she was living was a photograph in itself, but it was one that told a story. Yeah, well, I think, you know, she wanted, I mean, from the beginning, even during the whole kind of dressed down hippie era, you know, the counterculture that she was part of when she moved back to San Francisco actually for the third time in 1966 to join Big Brother and the Holding Company, she wanted to create this amazing stage presence. You know, again, she probably looked back to these wild outfits that Bessie Smith wore on stage when she was Empress of the Blues. And she wanted to have this incredible stage effect for her audience and fans and, you know, project this kind of incredible, cool, um, unique persona. But, you know, again, she had this other side to her when she was off stage. So, you know, you didn't, you know, she wasn't always living that. But she she wanted to make something of herself and create something. Because I think, you know, deep down she did have a lot of insecurity um, about her looks. Uh, she, I think she was a beautiful woman and 
you know, but she was uh, called a lot of really horrible names as a teenager. Um, and when she was at University of Texas in Austin, she was nominated. She didn't win, as uh, has uh, been falsely reported, but her face was plastered on posters on campus, and she was nominated for the Ugliest Man on Campus contest, which was just so painful. And, you know, she was different. She didn't wear her hair in a bouffant and little cinched waist shirt dresses and penny loafers and bobby socks. She was thought of herself as a beatnik. She wore like a men's big shirt or a, a black turtleneck with tights and went barefoot and wore Levi's. I mean, she tried to create, you know, the beat girl look. And she also was uh, sexually fluid. She, even at that young of an age, in that time, 1962, when um, being gay was illegal in Texas, um, she had both male and female lovers and didn't try to hide it. So I think, you know, this fraternity who was behind this competition you know, was kind of bashing her for, you know, her sexual fluidity as well as her being different, not looking like the other, you know, beehive girls for doing that. But, you know, it was very painful. And soon thereafter is when she hitchhiked from Texas to San Francisco for the first time in 1963 to try to make it as a blues singer on the coffeehouse circuit in the North Beach area. This book right here puts readers where there isn't acting, it's actuality. How did you keep it so real? Uh, well, thank you for saying that. I tried really hard. I, you know, writing is a process. It's it's like being a sculptor. You get this big block of marble, and you just keep chiseling away and working and working and working. And basically, you know, that's what I did with this book and I with all my books. And I I just tried to do justice to Janice as a musician and really paint a multifaceted picture of her. I thought that was really important. And so it just takes lots of, you know, research and revision. And, you know, they say it's not the writing, it's the editing. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true about that. All right. So now this is the project that you're currently promoting. What are you doing now as a writer? Because you you can't just release a book. That creative self still has to grow. Well... I have a few ideas, but I don't know if I want to say them yet because I don't want to jinx them because, you know, the book business is like the record business. I mean, you know, it's not what it used to be. It's, you know, it's um, it's it's tricky to get a, a book deal for a passionate project that you love, and I feel so fortunate I got it for this Janis Joplin biography, and I want to just kind of stay with Janice for a while, but there's some, you know, people in the book that kind of like, hmm, there could be a cool book about that person. You know, you, I always get inspired and, and passionate about um, other things that I learn while focusing on one subject. So who knows what will come out of this. That one subject this time around happened to be Janice Joplin. But a question, um, I know that you went into the research, and so many times a lot of research doesn't get touched because the family won't give you permission. Did you have to face any of those walls? Well, I was very fortunate in that I got to meet um, Janice's siblings. Um, Going back to the 1990s, I was honored to be asked to participate in the Janice Joplin Symposium at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And I got to meet them. I got to meet uh, her late guitarist, Sam Andrew, from Big Brother, and then he briefly played also in her next band, 
well, actually not briefly, was in the next band for pretty much of that tenure. And then um, Chet Helms, the guy who took her out to San Francisco and supported her music, who started the whole family dog Avalon ballroom scene in San Francisco in the 60s. So I got to meet them way back then. And over the years, our paths continued to cross. And they read my other books. Uh, I'd written a couple of other biographies. And so they thought that I was the person that they could trust with all this amazing, um, you know, uh, material, Janice's letters. She was an incredible letter writer. Oh, my gosh. I mean, there's an art to that. And Janice had it. And I really felt that I knew her from reading her letters. Also, her scrapbooks, in which she would annotate, draw little pictures around and write things in. Um, her personal effects, and then they also um, did all this without kind of demanding any sort of control over what I wrote or demanding to see, you know, and change anything. So I was very fortunate in that they trusted me to with this material that I would do right by Janice and I wasn't going to kind of, you know, uh, misuse it or take things out of context, that kind of things that, you know, sometimes people do that. And I'm super, you know, careful to try to put everything into perspective. I knew at four or five years old I was going to get into radio. Did you know along the way you were going to write this book? Oh, gosh. Like, you know, to hear you say that gives me a chill. Um, you know, as I mentioned, growing up in this tiny town in North Carolina, and people, you know, the youngsters of today have no idea how... Depending on where you live, there could be very little media for you to be educated about music. But if you became a fan, you got you just got sucked in. So literally in third grade, I became an obsessive rock and roll fan. I started playing in little bands, you know, drawing costumes <laughs> of what I wanted to wear on stage. So I think it was kind of Janice in my head, but I didn't even know it at the time. But I never dreamt, I never dreamt that I would have this amazing good fortune to get to have the opportunity to write a book about Janis Joplin. I really had no idea. I just didn't have those kind of goals. I just wanted to live and breathe music. And um, it's kind of, it definitely took me on, on a path. That's why I moved to New York City. Um, was for the music scene there, and now I live in upstate New York, near Woodstock, New York, where, of course, not too far from uh, where the festival was, but I literally live right down the road from Michael Lang, who was the producer of Woodstock. So to get to, and where Albert Grossman, Janice's um, loving, you know, manager lived, who was like a father figure to her, and famously, of course, managed Bob Dylan. So to actually get to live in that area where she would come breezing into town, and people told me about seeing her Porsche in Woodstock. So all these opportunities I never, ever thought would be possible, but I think... And I tell my students this, if you follow your passions and you just put it out there, it, things are going to come to you. It, it's, they're like ma I think you're passionate about things are like magnets that bring things to you. And I think that's kind of what happened to me. You've brought up a couple of times now. You're from a small town in North Carolina. Where are you, where are you from? It's a town called Asheboro in the very center of not Asheville, not the one up in the mountains that everyone's heard of. But um, the world's greatest zoo is in Asheboro. Oh, well, and so, you know, my father was an architect that designed the first phase of that zoo. I'm wow. very proud to say back in the 1970s, yeah, he's no longer with us, but his um, designs are still there. At the zoo, and it's, it, it's, I think it's still, it's, the plans for that zoo is it's going to be the first ever natural habitat zoo in America. So there's no, 
you know, the animals roam free on this beautiful landscape. It's it's really gorgeous. There's like little moats and things, and I think it's a pretty cool place. You know, a lot of people are really down on zoos, but um, this one I think has got a lot of good um, good things going for it. You're absolutely right. I've been there a million times. I'm up here in Charlotte. Oh, oh, I didn't know you were in Charlotte. Yeah. Okay, well that's. Well, that's my, okay, so my cousins are around Charlotte, and my mom's from, you know, western North Carolina, um, up in the, you know, Rutherfordton, Forest City area, that's where, she was from, you know, Appalachia, so, you know, I grew up, like, making fun of, you know, old-timey country music that my mom liked, and gospel, because I wanted to be cool and be a rock and roller, but then, of course, funnily enough, I moved to New York City for the punk scene, and guess what happened? I turned into a total country music fan, oh, went to no. see Four Stones at the bottom line, got into rockabilly, country, Carter family, all that stuff once I moved to New York City. So <laughs> go figure, right? What's the best way for someone to find out more about the book and find out more information about you? Well, I do have a website. It's hollygeorgewarren, all one word, .com. So there's info about the book there. Um, I'm going to be touring all over, and in fact, I'm going to be in Greensboro, North Carolina, um, on January 18th, the day before Janice's birthday. Which oh, is January nice. 19th. Well, we should all get together for some Southern barbecue. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> yep. I guess you like the Western. I guess you like the Western style because you're from Charlotte, but. I like the eastern. My dad was from eastern North Carolina, so I go for the eastern style. <laughs> yeah, Le- Lexington barbecue to me is the best. I mean, they're, they're, whatever they do, with the, whatever's in the water in Lexington, I mean, they're, they're, nothing can beat it. Oh, yeah, and it's so close to my hometown. So whenever <laughs> my brother's still in that borough, so whenever I come home, I always make a plan to eat as much barbecue as possible. <laughs> and I go to Lexington when I can. Absolutely. Please come back to this show anytime in the future. The door is always going to be open for you, Holly. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate your support of the book and telling people about it. And I will hopefully see you in North Carolina. Absolutely. You be brilliant today, okay? I will. Thank you so much. <laughs> some sounds from Impractical Jokers the movie and then when we come back we'll be unplugged and totally uncut with Sal and Q. Warning the following program movie contains scenes of graphic stupidity among four lifelong friends who compete to embarrass each other. Hello? Are you alright? I've been down here since 1987. I was looking for the gift shop. It's on down the left. On February 21st, the world's greatest jokers are coming to the big screen. You're the impractical jokers. Yeah. Yeah. I love you guys. I'm having this huge party. I'll see you in Miami? Yeah. Yes. She sent three tickets. We'll settle this. The four of us will compete in hidden camera challenges on the way down to Miami, and the loser doesn't go to the party. Your object is to get people to stop to help you. I lost my virginity in this car. It was a hell of a night. You show me what you have in the trunk. You don't work for the fuzz, do you? <laughs> I'm just his number one fan. I need a little bit more crazy eyes. <laughs> what are we doing? Four grown men, we're out here jacking around. If you guys want to leave and go home, I'm ready to go now. No! We're not going anywhere. We're going to finish what we started. Four Jokers. Three tickets. Ten challenges. One wild ride. Happy birthday! Guys, did you think this through? Not really. Not really. 
Practical Jokers the movie. Good morning and good afternoon, you guys. Hey, how are you? What's it like to go from from a 30-minute show to an hour-and-a-half movie, man? I mean, this this totally had to have been a wide-open moment. Uh, a dream come true, a dream realized for us. We, we, we started the, the show, you know, nine seasons ago. Uh, we just had 200 episodes, and somewhere right in the middle, we, we, we started playing with the idea of wanting to do a movie. We didn't know if we could bring it to fruition. It took years to do it, and I think uh, hopefully this is the best timing because um, our fans are, are as loyal to us uh, as ever right now, and we really think we made the movie for them. We think they're really going to enjoy it, but it was wild. Speaking of timing, I mean, you guys are the masters at timing things out, the way that you're able to, you know, just really kind of put things together. Thank you. We like doing that. (laughs) (laughs) How much of that, though, is left on the cutting room floor? Actually, you could probably make another nine seasons out of what we had to cut. Yeah, Yeah, from the TV show. We also do jokes on the show for each other, like more like, let's say, awful and mean jokes just to make each other laugh that we know we're never going to make it on TV. So there is a version of Impractical Jokers that's way different and also way less successful (laughs) if you make that show. Yeah, for all the seasons of the show, uh, countless times that uh, you had a great bit going with someone and then they didn't sign and and, and the world will never see those episodes and they add up. Uh, I really do believe there's seasons worth of stuff we could air. And likewise, in the movie, we overshot the movie. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we wanted to have the best of the best. So there's a few bits that didn't make it into the actual final movie. So there's a fair amount of stuff on the cutting board. I guess only we will have in our brains. Here. It's, just, it's just for us, though. Yeah. I, I just got this picture of you guys having this gigantic vault of all of this film and stuff. And then, the, you know, 10, 15 years from now, maybe even 30 years from now, it's going to be open. We're all going to be going, I never saw this before. I need to have more. Oh, yeah, you would think so, but they erased all the footage from the first movie. <laughs> no. By accident, we lost a lot of the first footage. But I will tell you, uh, wonderful. Keep all this stuff under a vault, and I will give you 10% because we got to re-release this stuff in 20 years yeah. and just start getting sent some checks in the mail. <laughs> well, just when we Just when we think, you know... It'll help us write out our last few mortgage payments. <laughs> you know, that, that brings me to a point. I mean, there, there's going to come a time where you, you, the image that you've got in this movie of, of all four of you, you know, 25 years from now, you guys are going to be out there on, on a tour and we're going to be looking at the film, looking at you going, shit, you guys got old. Oh, yeah. You think you look at it, buddy? <laughs> I, looked, I looked at an episode of me from seven years ago and I was like, what happened to me? What, 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 what occurred in my life to turn me into... Gandalf the Grey. Like, it's not good. It's it's not good, man. I'm not aging like Clooney. I'm aging, well, I'm aging like Brian Quinn, which, is, which, which isn't that great. I, I have Benjamin Button's disease, so I, I, I'm all good. Yeah, I'm looking at you right now. You still don't have a single gray hair. I have more grays than white. I'm, I'm what they call a silver fox, but not a fox. It's like a silver badger. I don't know, whatever it would be, but Sal, it like, looks... Looks looks very young. I don't know. Uh, my dad didn't go great till his late sixties, but I do have no hair on my leg. That is weird. You have smooth leg. It, it is weird. I don't know. What part of the country are you from for that? Because I'm from Montana and I'm the same way. But I, I would think I'd be a, like a, a you know a hairy man being from Montana. We're, we're born and raised Staten Island, New York. So uh, that's where the guys and I all met. Actually, we we all went to high school together, and um, we met 1990 as freshmen in high school, all boys Catholic high school. Yeah. And Sal and I still live on Staten Island. We, we're the only two that keep it real. How have you kept it together? Because you, you know what it's all about here in 2020, man. Everybody's ghosting everybody, and they, they think you're still friends, but nah, they left you behind. But you guys continue to pour it on. Well, I mean, I, I, we really genuinely, genuinely love each other. We genuinely, like, Sal is my best friend. Like, we, we just, like, there's no behind the scenes anything. What you see is what you get. We like working with each other. 
Uh, we're very. Ad- I think. I think that one of the big secrets of our success has been we don't fight. Like we do, but we don't. You know what I mean? Like once every two years, we'll get into like a little, a little, a little back and forth. But it's not even a fight. Yeah. Like yeah, you hear, you hear. I, I guess I could equate it most to bands that yeah. I hear it. But you, you hear the bands break up stories and this and that. And, and you know, it's just. A, I think it's a function of having to travel together and be creative together constantly, and also um, make decisions together. Um, and you hear, I, I read a lot of memoirs and things like that about bands breaking up, but we luckily, I don't know, we found success late, um, if you want to call it success, we found it pretty late, and we were real friends for very long before that, and, um, you know, we just rather, you know, champion each other, and um, there's, no, there's no problem we, we really couldn't be able to solve in order to keep this going, which is the most fortunate thing that could ever happen to four, four friends. Yeah. There, there are so many guys that are uh, vicariously living through you, and the reason why is because you guys are getting to do something that many of us can't do. We don't have the friends for it, or if we are, it's just coworkers, and we're just going to get our butts in trouble. <laughs> there, are, there are many people that, that want to be uh, in our shoes, and the reason I agree with you is because they shout it out our faces every day in the street. <laughs> <laughs> people believe people let us know everything. They let us know their love for us, their disdain for us, and they let us know that they could do what we do, or they want to do what we do, or I love you, or the heck with you. So we, we get it all. We, we there is no filter between people on the streets and, and us. Well, because they see us because we play ourselves like we're, we're ourselves on TV. We're not playing anything. Like we just go on. So people feel they know us. But like if they saw like whatever, like a like a Clooney. They're like, oh, my God, that's George Clooney. That's the esteemed actor, George Clooney. He was in my favorite movie. They see us. They're like, oh, it's Sal. It's Q. What's going on, guys? Like, they just feel like they know us, so they can just do and say whatever they want to us. Yeah, apparently we have <laughs> no esteem. Now, you, you guys said that you met in 1990. Man, that was right there in the prime of Paula Abdul, and she's in this movie. That had to be a moment for you because, I mean, that was Paula Abdul. That is exactly what we said. <laughs> she's a you know, pop icon, and and um, still she still is, and she 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 was it back back then. I mean, I mean, she, not to take anything away from her now, but that was the. I mean, she was a hit after a hit after a hit. She was ubiquitous. She was the biggest pop star on the planet, and that was all when we were in high school. And we thought that that would be a really good fit for the time period because there was a section in the movie where we uh, back in high school in the nineties, and uh, we called her up. And uh, she was familiar with the show and, and agreed fairly quickly to do it. Really quickly. Like, which was so kind of her. We didn't know if we'd get her. And uh, she delivered more than we even expected. Oh, man. She she was just a gem. She almost made me cry last night. Oh, yeah? At, at the thing, yeah. That's the last night we had our uh, world premiere, although the, the movie opened this weekend. Tickets are on sale right oh, now. Oh, yeah. We should mention that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the movie the movie is released in limited, limited theaters on uh, this Friday. The 21st, mm-hmm. um, we would ask any fans, if you don't mind me saying this, uh, if you're going to go see the movie, please go opening weekend, because we, the more people go see it, more theaters carry it. It's one of those rolling releases. So if, if you love your old pals, Hugh and Sal, and you, and you want to you wanna help us out, please, please, please go see the movie this week. Really for the fans, because in the sections of the country, that and uh, maybe even international, that the movie's not being played, we want to get the movie to those fans. So, yeah. So we were at the premiere last night, and Paula, she pulled me aside, and she's like, she's like, I've had a long career. She's like, I've done a lot of things. She goes, this is, if not my, if not my favorite thing I've ever done, it's one of my favorite things. She goes, it feels really special, and thanks for keeping me involved. And, and, and it was just a real feeling. Yeah, she's really sweet. Yeah, she's just such, such a nicest person. Well, I love the twist that you guys have with this, because she's, she's throwing a party in Miami, and she's only got three tickets, so that means the four of you have got to go after each other. 
Yeah, that was kind of like we, we, we wanted a loose narrative to give a structure to the movie and to give us a reason to go on this road trip and compete. And so, sure, we're competing to go to this party that she's throwing in Miami, and she shorts us one ticket. So it's not brain surgery. We kept it light and simple and fun. And uh, that's just kind of like the uh, the motivation of, of the road trip and the competition in the movie. To get the guts, to get your friends to do something, when we, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it, that's what's so attractive to this show is that you're doing things that that are just mind blowing. And it's like, God, would I do that or would I chicken out? But if you chicken out, you're done. You lose. Yeah, that's a big issue. <laughs> that's a big. I mean, but I mean, the thing is, it's not even big things. What like my favorite things on the show are are the little stupid things, like cutting someone in line. Like those little social things that are going to cause a I problem. Agree. Yeah, the, those is w- w- where I like living. We get elaborate. I love there's a little bit of in each of the things that we do. We get elaborate, but uh, sometimes, like, like you just said, there's no simple, basic stuff. The most relatable stuff, the most stuff that happens to everyone on the daily. Those little social faux pas. Those are the things that really resonate uh, with everybody. Modern day technology has to be helping you guys out in a very big way because you can you can go into hiding even more than what you did five six years ago. Ooh, I mean, actually. Well, explain what you, you mean, mean for the show. Yeah, no, in other words, when you guys are off hidden in the back, you 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 know that's one of the things that you know, like even with what was it uh, the uh, hidden camera, where this way then they they you couldn't see anything going on with modern day technology and the size of cameras, you can get things that are spot on without anybody taking note. Uh, oh, you can, and you think that uh, practical jokers would be the cutting edge of that technology, but we are still using the same cameras from season one. <laughs> like, like, like the cameras that we use when we shoot in the park. This is no exaggeration. The budget for our show is like one hundred fifty dollars. It is um, <laughs> like you can go buy the same cameras on sale at Best Buy for forty three dollars that we use when we shoot in the park. It is real, <laughs> and that is not a joke. Like we really just go for like ten eighty p. Um, cameras. It's, it's it's a little perplexing sometimes. I will tell you though, we even surprise ourselves sometimes though, because uh, they did a they did a trick uh, a trick. They set me up pretty big. I they, they I thought I was in trouble with Homeland Security, and it's the first time they ever did this. They took it outside the realm of the show, and they said that I got a letter in the mail from Homeland Security, and they said that I had to go to a deposition <laughs> for something that I did that I I went on, I trespassed on government property, <laughs> and it was real enough, and I and I didn't realize, and I went on my off day. Little did I know this was part of the show we'd never done it that way before and i remember i had to go in a room and sit across a desk from i i suppose an official yeah. government official and they had uh this is the one time we exercised new technology yeah this was they a had good one. pinhole sized cameras inside the water bottles on the table because you know i'm well versed with the show so i i know when something's up i know the tricks and they had to find a camera to dupe me because yeah. like you said we just use like you know, old tube televisions. So, um, I couldn't believe that they had a camera inside, inside a full water bottle. Yeah, and where the label was uh, uh, on the water bottle, all the technology was hidden behind the label, and there was water above and below the camera. It was pretty, and we shot that on the set. I don't know if you even knew this. Where we shot that was an official New York City building that they shoot Law & Order in. Oh, no way. So it was the same set as Law & Order because it's a real New York City right, building. So right, it was right. Great. It was great. It was, it was a fun one. Um, and with the movie, we, we took everything that we couldn't do. For like, we, we're we're um, about to start filming our ninth season now. We just celebrated 200 episodes, knock on wood. Um, but we had a list of things that we couldn't do um, because uh, we were, for, for whatever reason, like it, it was... It wouldn't have played out over 20-something minutes on TV or it was expensive. And we kept this running list over all these years, and we put most of those things in this movie. So this movie is, is a love letter to the fans for all the things we always wanted to do. 
Was it easy for you guys to step into those shoes or, or is it, do you guys walk out of this going, okay, we've done this movie now. I want to try something new next time. Um, well, I, I guess that's a good question. I, I don't think we really know yet. Uh, the movie was an interesting, it was an interesting experiment for us and we, we had fun making it, but we can make an episode of the TV show in like a week. <laughs> and, and like you so when we made the movie, we were shooting like one day was a 16 hour day and we were looking at each other like, oh, my God, what are we doing out here? But the movie was so much fun to make and, and it was a whole different experience. I guess we got to see how people respond. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess if it like is really, 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 really well received and stuff like that and people go see it, maybe it'll get it'll make us want to. Yeah. To top ourselves. Maybe. You know? Yeah, maybe it, it was definitely a different format for, for sure. And we. Are very happy with the product, but we got to guess we got to see what everybody else thinks. Yeah. <laughs> now, moving from television to the big screen movie theater, I mean, the rules change. You can get away with things in that theater. Uh, we we do. We try to push the limits a little bit more. Um, do you mean you just mean in, on, in, in a in a in a movie instead of on television? Well, on television, you know, you you know, you got to go through the censors, and you know, they're gonna say, ah, you can't, you couldn't do that. And but on in, in the big, you know, you know, with the big screen movie, I mean, you've got or or did you play by rules? Yeah, no, Arrow. Can I tell you, you'd be surprised because I thought the same. A way that you did, uh, because on the show uh, we found out the show's co-viewing, so families watch together. So we we put adult stuff in the show, but our intention is always to let it go over the children's heads. So it's like a little something for everybody, kind of like uh, you know cartoons that 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 resonate with parents and kids, like that kind of thing. And um, we found that we can get away with a lot more uh, on the show because the censors for the uh, movies are so strict. Like we had to do a, they had to rate us, and it first came back rated R, and we had to pull stuff little things from the movie here and there. That didn't affect it too much just because we wanted, uh, you know, a wider audience to be able to see it. It came down It came down to the, the word one, climax. Yeah, the word climax. Because it's crazy. Yeah, there was a joke where one of us said, like, oh, you look like Tom Selleck's climax on your shirt. I was wearing a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> he was wearing a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt, and, like, we purposely used, like... Innocuous language. Yeah, we were like, and, and they... they they dug their ground. They they were like, you guys cannot air. You, if you put this movie out with the word climax in it, it's rated R. Which is really funny because um, if you watch the movie, even with the word climax in it, it is not rated R at all. No. But once you cross the threshold of rated R, you're in the same bucket as every other rated R movies, even the hard R's. Because a hard R, like, is it, you know, until you get like to... Like human NC centipedes. <laughs> yeah, until, until you get to NC-17, it's all R. So it's so funny to hear that if we kept the word climax and we'd be in the same category as human centipedes. You know, you, get, you guys are talking about, you know, growing up through the through the 80s and 90s and stuff like that. When there was an R-rated movie, that's the one that you wanted to check out at the drive-in theater. But but you, you go to a drive-in theater now, if you guys would have gotten that R, it would have been, yeah, they, they said climax. That's all you got out of it? Yeah. That's it. I didn't see any boobs. No boobs. Oh, yeah. Rated R flick in my day meant something. Yeah, they really did. <laughs> it's just so lame. It meant you were going to hear some language, maybe see some things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, who came up with the idea of hiding out in the cave? Uh, that was all of us just kicking it around. I, I, yeah, you, I, sometimes it's hard to remember how, because we yeah. sit in a room I, with the writers and producers, like we just, we, and we just spitball so much, and... Yeah, no. I, I I remember I I had seen the movie Descent and we were talking about Descent, and it wasn't like I'm not like and that's from the discussion of the movie The Descent. It came from that. Who decided to put Joe as a cave monster? I don't know, but I remember seeing that movie and being like, oh, and talking to you about it. The I, next I do remember this when it came up. We 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 felt as strongly about it as we do now, yeah. which was sometimes you think of an idea and we already know that it has to. It's a no-brainer layup. This is oh. going to be a home run. And those are gifts. And that one was a gift. Yeah. That one was a gift. Sometimes we have to 
uh, really massage an idea and tweak it, and, and, and then it still doesn't work. But that one was, was like, oh, Joe is a cave dweller that hasn't seen sunlight in 30 years? Home run. <laughs> the, the idea that made us laugh, it's so funny because, like, there's no accounting for this, but me and Sal were laughing so hard there were tears in our eyes. He wears a shirt that says, I'm the beef. Um, in it because he's supposed to be in the cave since the 80s and at first it said where's the beef we didn't have, we couldn't get the rights we couldn't get the rights for, for where's the beef so we just said on the beef but we would just I don't know why we thought it was so funny that he's wearing this where's the beef shirt because it's a first of all it's a knockoff because if you remember back in that that campaign for I think it was Wendy's yeah, Wendy's. That campaign was huge yeah. when we were younger, and we thought, you know, we wanted to do some pop culture references because he was supposed to be trapped in the cave for thirty years. <laughs> so when they wouldn't let us do it, we, we loved the joke so much. We were all like, "Would everyone settle for Iron the Beef?" I think it's even funnier. <laughs> and, and and then in the, in the movie, Joe is so proud. Of, we make him so proud of the shirt, so he keeps walking up to people like, "You get it? I'm the Beef. You get it? I'm the Beef." I, that's the sort of thing that I don't know if, a, if like, an audience in Ohio is going to sit or anywhere is going to sit there and be like, that's hysterical. But we love it. We're laughing right now about it. We've been living with it for a year and a half. <laughs> the, the art of putting viewers on the edge that you do, that, that where they want to bust out in laughter, but at the same time, they're so mystified by everything that's going on because they want to see the end result. That's patience, isn't it? Did you, did you have to go study comedy somewhere in order to understand the true pace of what you guys do? I don't think so. I, I think we it really, for me, uh, and Sal's definitely a bigger student of comedy than I am. But for me, it was it's really about what it, what is going to make Sal laugh, what is going to make Joe laugh, what is going to make Mer laugh. Like that's really my only my only target audience is myself and the three other guys. Yeah, that's really the Brahma, the only Brahma we have to use. You know, yeah. like who? I mean, you 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 do what you think, and then you put it out there, and if they agree, then you keep doing it. I don't think it was it was more of like um, the guys and I have been performing and writing comedy for uh, 20 years. So, I, 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 and, and if you look back at our, our early stuff, or you can't, but if I go look back at our early stuff, you know, you definitely see the growth. There's a shorthand now because we've been trying and we're failing so long that uh, I, I, I think we have our own, like, kind of sensibility. And uh, it, it took a long time to get there. I think it was just about uh, incessantly creating, you know, until we, in, until it, we just kind of, like... My, uh, over time, it, you kind of like mold into something. You find your voice, and we yeah. found our voice as a collective. And, yeah, we find that we like fall into bits without even having to. Like, Sal will start, start, like Joe made a noise yesterday at the premiere, and I turned to him and I go, what are you about to do? Because just the way he went, uh, and I go, what are you doing? What are you about to do? And he started cracking up because we just know each other so well at this point that life is just a routine. It's really fun. It's a lot of fun. What are you going to do when you have to get a real job? <laughs> Don't ask me that. I'll tell you what, I'm not getting a real job. Yeah, that, those days are this over, my it. friend. This is it, buddy boy. I signed up hook, line, and sinker. A real job equals no yeah. job. I'm happy to lay on my couch and sail into the sunset. Right. I gave up a city pension for it, so it's better less. <laughs> now, I know you guys are visuals and everything like that with the TV show and now the movie Impractical Jokers, but are, do you guys grow into, into podcasting? Because you guys are just as funny, and this way you force our theater, the mind, to sit there and, and envision what you guys are doing. Yeah, I've been doing a podcast for 10 years called uh, Tell Him Steve Dave with some of Kevin Smith's uh, uh, crew out in New Jersey, and Sal and I have a podcast uh, called What Say You, 
that uh, we've been a little dormant lately. No denying. We that. went in hard for a couple of years, and it, we've been on a, a couple of year hiatus just because the bandwidth wasn't there anymore. But we loved it so much. As a matter of fact, we've been doing these radio tours to promote the movie, and I like radio even. I mean, way more, even more than more than a medium of television. It's like. It's been making me want to get behind the, the mic again. Let's but, uh, do it. Yeah, we've been talking about getting it going. We have a really loyal fan base. It was called What Say You. So maybe we'll get back into it. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, congratulations on this movie, guys. I expect to hear from you many more times in the future with future movies. Oh, well, that'd be great, Mara. Thank you so much. You guys be brilliant today, okay? <laughs> you got it. We'll try. Last night was a premiere party, so what I'm going to do is go home and fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs>